you look at our strategy, because we are app first, we're taking a lot of our inspiration from the East. Companies like Meituan and certainly Alibaba have actually developed a commerce model that's based on a mix of social products, financial services, but also social commerce. The ability to earn credit to lower the cost of your commerce purchase by acting socially, by sharing, by doing all sorts of things, including engaging on games. As far as I know, this, this social commerce approach, which has actually been the driver of Hopper's growth, the brand since the, the pandemic ended, is kind of unique. From McKinsey & Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Frederick Lalonde. Frederick is the co-founder and CEO of Hopper, a Montreal-based company he co-founded in 2007 that launched an innovative travel app back in 2015. He's here today to take us on a journey. He'll explain how Hopper transformed from a company getting the bulk of its revenue from airline ticket sales into really a travel fintech business, selling financial products such as price freezing and cancellation insurance. Along the way, we'll also discuss some consumer psychology, as well as the power of gamification and social commerce, and the trade-offs involved in targeting younger travelers. Let's get started. Frederick, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a question about you first. How did you get where you are today and what inspired you to get into the travel industry? So I came into the travel industry fully by accident. I dropped out of school when I was 19. I wasn't an ex-McKenzie consultant before that. I don't even have a diploma. I've never really held a job. And when I started my first company, we were banging around a couple of ideas. One of them, interestingly, was how do you automate a store? So imagine a store where there's no cashier, which we were like 20 years early for. But travel was interesting because it seemed like a very large category and the technology is still green screen. It was, it was like that when I was 19 and I'm not 19 now and it's still like that. So we just felt that there was this idea where you could build something better. So you founded the company in 2007, but it wasn't until 12 years later in 2019 that Hopper started to build a proprietary suite of travel fintech products. Can you tell us a little bit about what initially triggered that strategy and that shift? Yeah, so we, we started our travel fintech products in 2019 out of necessity. We were mostly back then an air-only travel app. We would cater to you know younger generation and we were looking at ways to increase the profitability of the company because we, we had almost 20 million users at that point. The focus of a lot of our competitors was on punitive fees. So they would you know, mark up the baggage fees or charge you if you canceled. We thought that there was a path forward that would actually um, benefit the consumer, benefit the airline and allow Hopper to grow. And we did this by taking our initial advantage. Hopper was started to forecast airfare uh, and turn it into a suite of financial and protection products, things like freezing prices, creating refundability where the product you're buying isn't refundable. Um, and that got extended to things like disruption protection. So we did this because we needed money, but at the end of the day, it became a core part of our value proposition. And today we have over hundred million downloads and a lot of our customers come to us and certainly come back because of all these financial products that we offer. That's really interesting. So what is it about these financial products that's proven to be so appealing to customers and, and why? So Hopper offers a suite of protection products. So these are things like freezing a price or making a non-refundable fare refundable. 
And the consumer psychology behind this is fascinating. So from our standpoint, what we're doing is we're taking a bet. You know, if I freeze a price for you um, and I price the price of holding that for you, so I say I'm going to charge you $40 for this, I'm just an algorithm, right? I'm figuring out what my win-loss ratio is. And it's okay if your price goes up as long as the majority of these things that I've sold work out properly. But the consumer's perspective is fascinating. First of all, they don't see it that way. They, they don't think that they're taking a bet against the house like you would in a casino. They're trying to remove a, a component of anxiety. But the psychology is even more interesting. So if I take an example, which is our refundability product. So we take a non-refundable fare on an airline or a hotel, and we say, you can make this refundable for a small fee that is always cheaper than buying the full refundability, but you'll get 80% of your money back. You need to have some skin in the game. When we offer it after you choose your flight, a certain number of people buy this because it looks like insurance and about 20% of the population buys insurance and a bunch of people never do because they don't trust it. But if I take the same product and I create a fair class, so you'll see in the Hopper app, you'll see the economy and you'll see the flexible and you'll see one that says refundable by Hopper. 20% of people buy that, but it's not the same 20% because some people that don't buy insurance will actually not always book the lowest fare class. They would actually prefer to pay a slightly higher fare and get some flexibility. So we've actually found that for the same risk pool, the same product, the same algorithm, understanding the user's anxiety, their psychology, the true need is the key to selling these products because it's something new that they don't understand. So rather than explaining it to them, we just make it fit into their natural shopping flow. And when you look over the last three or four years, we have more than quintupled our fintech revenue just by making it fit into the user's math. Wow, that's really fascinating and it and actually seems quite useful. But I am curious, is your product actually unique? Or are there any other companies offering similar products? What Hopper offers in fintech isn't totally unique. There's other companies that have dabbled in this. Airlines, for example, have allowed you to lock fares for a few hours or a few days. And some other travel portals allow you know refundability. The sheer scale of what we've done is probably what makes us unique. So first of all, when you take our core fintech products, things like uh, cancel for any reason or disruption protection, we offer these things on both hotels and flights, which nobody really does. We allow customers to freeze prices on cars, hotels, and flights. So the, the generalization of these offerings to every part of the travel wallet is something that nobody's done. The second part is the sheer scale. And the third part, what's very different, is our ability to price it. So launching a product where you freeze a price is relatively easy to do if you're willing to blow your face off and lose millions of dollars a day. What's very difficult is to do it profitably at a price that the consumer is actually going to agree to pay for. And that happens because we have this massive data store that we've used for our predictive pricing that lets us do these things like freeze prices or offer refundability. I also understand that you're incorporating social commerce and gamification into the travel app. Where'd the inspiration come from for that? Um, and could you share a few of the social commerce strategies that you're pursuing now and, and maybe describe them a little bit for our listeners? 
if you look at our strategy, because we are app first, we're taking a lot of our inspiration from the East. Companies like Meituan and certainly Alibaba have actually developed a commerce model that's based on a mix of social products, financial services, but also social commerce. The ability to earn credit to lower the cost of your commerce purchase by acting socially, by sharing, by doing all sorts of things, including engaging on games. As far as I know, this the social commerce approach, which has actually been the driver of Hopper's uh, growth, the brand since the, the pandemic ended, is kind of unique. And so we do things like we let you engage in streaks. If you check in every day, you come in and you say, yep, I'm still here. And we let you play games. We let you share the app. And we've had like enormous numbers, like 700,000 people have completed a streak to earn anywhere between 10 and $20. And so offering casual ways to interact with an app like we do on Hopper creates a very different emotional relationship, but also a very pragmatic one that I now have credit. And what we found is all these crazy numbers, like you're 10 times more likely to book with us if you started this process. You're five times more likely to to share the app because you feel that you as the customer have invested something into this app. And that's what's at the foundation of this principle that was developed um, even a decade ago in the East. We've had days where we've sold more digital products than we've sold flights, and, and we sell a lot of flights in a day. So we've actually found that the younger demographic, the mobile-first environment, um, allows us to do things like have people come in, complete streaks to get booking credits, or actually sell digital products, which in the travel world, that's unheard of. I don't even know of another company in the West that that's, does this, although that's common in places like China and Southeast Asia. This type of engagement model, as far as I know, is unique in the West and certainly in North America. And it's becoming the unique value proposition that Hopper has. So for the listener who might not be quite so plugged into social commerce, can you just tell us a little bit more about how that works? The foundational principle between social commerce is you reward your customers to engage. And if they are active, promoting your brand, promoting a sale that you might have, or even playing a game or scrolling through your app, you actually lower the price of their commerce. So in, in the terms of Hopper, like what we do there, there's a lot of things, but one of the very simple examples is a streak. So if you launch the app now and you've never used our app, what you're going to find is we've given you $20 of credit just for showing up. And so what is that? Well, it's a way to get you to build what's called mounting loss. Now, all of a sudden, there's a reason to book on Hopper rather than going to whatever you were using before you download the app. But if you do a streak, we will let you earn another 10, 20, or even $40. And at that point, you have $60 of credit in your app just for engaging. And so leaving the app and booking directly with you know another website um, is going to cost you real money. Now, why do we do this? Like, what is the purpose of this? It's because when you think of what it costs in the Western world where commerce company and social companies are separate, the commerce companies give money to the social networks. It's just way better for me to give that money to you to activate you as a customer and to give you more if you actually invite your friends. It's just common sense. It's actually kind of funny that we do it the other way around in, in North America. Other examples of social commerce are games. Um, so you're going to see us launching games where you actually play a game. And instead of having to pay to unlock the features, we pay you. And part of the reason there is 
On mobile, we have all these micro moments. You have downtime, you're waiting for your coffee, you're waiting for your daughter's ballet lesson to end. And that's very different than how we use a desktop. And so offering casual ways to interact with an app like we do on Hopper creates a very different emotional relationship, but also a very pragmatic one that I now have credit. But I'm wondering though, this really seems like it'd uh, appeal a lot more to younger travelers. Are there any trade-offs in pursuing such younger travelers who may be more comfortable with and heavier users of mobile tech and apps, but probably have a fair bit less discretionary income than older, uh, more established travelers? So Hopper targets a much younger audience. 70% of our customers are either in the younger tranche of millennial or Gen Z, which for a travel company is interesting. Because travel is not a pair of shoes. It's not, you know, a double A battery purchase. It's usually a lot of money. And so there are some trade-offs to doing this. So one of them is, um, you know, a lot of the rules around travel are punitive to younger uh, travelers. So for example, 70% of our customers do not have credit. They're using debit cards to buy. And it's not because they're poor. It's because they're young, right? They just haven't had access to credit, which in the U.S. is particularly difficult to get, especially right now. The The other part of it is you'll see some things like renting a car, right? It, it, if you're under 25, there's actually a punitive fee that the car rental company has to charge. So a lot of what we've been doing is allowing customers that don't have access to the credit or are younger to purchase the travel without a lot of this geometry. So for example, we've negotiated with a lot of our car rental partners to waive the young driver fee. Um, and because we aggregate enough of this audience, we can do it. Another component is we let our customers freeze prices. So if you have a very large credit uh, or multiple credit cards, you might freeze a price because you need to talk to your spouse and confirm the travel dates. But 25% of our customers freeze prices because their paycheck hasn't cleared. They quite literally do not have the money in their bank account to benefit from the lower price. So what we've been doing is instead of saying, wow, this is a problem, we're engineering a lot of our fintech products to help younger customers have access to the same travel experience that their parents may have. And of course, we've been doing this for a while. What happens when they get older? Well, they become mainstream and then they do have access to credit. They start buying more expensive tickets, you know, better hotel rooms, but they've adopted you as their core travel brand. And I think this explains a lot of the growth that we've had at Hopper. That makes sense. And so, so now let's switch gears and uh, talk a little bit about Hopper Cloud. I understand that Hopper Cloud offers fintech products to other travel companies. What's the strategy behind expanding from your historical focus on consumer and moving into B2B? So what we realized is that by offering our own financial products on Hopper, we were not only generating income for Hopper, but what was really happening is we were unlocking new customer spend. On average, in North America, when a customer comes to Hopper to buy the same travel stuff they can buy anywhere else, they're spending an extra $40 per booking. And they're doing this because they want the flexibility, they want the production, they want the optionality that we offer. So we realized that if we were able to offer our financial products to the world, to every other website, whether it's an airline, a hotel, or even a competitor, that there was at least 400 to 600 billion dollars of unrealized travel spend. This is new money coming into the ecosystem. So in 21, we launched Hopper Cloud, which we dub as risk as a service. So we offer all these financial products to partners, and we're seeing a whole slew of companies come to us because new customer spend 
at a high net promoter score means higher loyalty, higher conversion, but also new revenue. And today in travel, corporate travel is still depressed. And people on the outside don't understand that, but anybody in the industry will tell you most of the profitability comes from corporate. So almost everybody on the planet is looking at new revenue sources. And Hopper Cloud, the fintech offering, opens this up to every other player. Hopper Cloud was a $0 business two years ago, and it's 50% of our revenues. The growth rate is actually outpacing the app growth right now. Wow, that's pretty incredible growth. But, but tell me, what's been the biggest lesson so far from your experience running this company from a strategy perspective? The single most important thing that I've learned building Hopper is actually this really cheesy quote. And it's attributed to Steve Jobs, but like a lot of things, he borrowed it. Um, and so the, 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 the quote is actually skate to where the puck is going. And the real story is it's, it's actually Wayne Gretzky's dad. So there was a reporter that was asking him before he was drafted to the NHL, why is your kid so good? And he said, well, Wayne just skates to where the puck is going, not where it is. Hopper started working as a company when we started building for the future, not the state of things when they were there. So the best example I can give you in 2014, we launched mobile only when commerce in North America for travel was less than 10% on the phone. 90% was still on a desktop. And so that made no sense. Like putting all the resources into a, a minor channel like that and not even doing a website. How are you going to get customers? Are people going to buy flights on the, on the phone? But I had had the chance to work in India where the cheap Android phones had hit the market. And within three quarters, I'd seen in, in Indian travel, the, the mobile share go from 10 to 75%. And so when we started building things for what the market was going to be in five years instead of what it was, two things happened. Nothing we made made sense, right? So we would do things like build financial products and nobody understood what we were going to do with them. And we would go all in on mobile. And today we're all in on video, which is not the dominant way of purchasing travel. But if you actually can predict the future, you don't need to be a hundred years ahead, just four or five and understand where the next generation is going. You get an advantage. And today we have a hundred million mobile users, which is probably the biggest app in the world. Um, and that's because of the decisions we made in 2014. Well, so speaking of the future, I'm interested in your perspective on the use of generative AI in the travel industry. It's probably a question on a lot of people's minds. Do you think it has important applications? So everybody's talking about generative AI right now, and it is a very powerful technology and will absolutely have profound changes in society because of it. And we're only at the beginning of this. All these things are obvious. Uh, but there's one thing about Hopper that makes us different is we always work backwards from a customer and never from a technology. So as much as people are talking about generative AI right now, you know, it was the same thing about blockchain a few years ago. It was the same thing about the metaverse, augmented reality, augmented VR. And although these technologies will have fundamental impacts in a lot of sectors, maybe they won't have that in travel. And so at the risk of sounding unpopular, we never rush into a new technology. We always look at the customer behavior. It's always cool you know, to bolt something onto your website that's gonna be there for three weeks that makes you sound cool, but the fundamental need from the customer isn't clear right now. And until we see those adoption curves, we tend to stay on the sidelines and look at what's gonna happen. Right now, I do believe automation of customer support is gonna be incredibly interesting. Nobody likes to wait in line or wait for the chat to get a response for a few hours, but we haven't found that core use case. We're paying attention to it, but as soon as I see our customers interested in it, we're gonna be the first in market. 
I don't have any question about that one, Frederick. Thank you. Uh, last question for us today. It's been um, it's been more than fifteen years since you founded Hopper in two thousand seven. So, what's your ambition for Hopper in the next five to ten years? When we founded Hopper, we were basically saying. You know, if we get to a billion dollar company, that would be cool. It seems that over the past decade, the bar just keeps getting raised. Now a billion dollar company is just Tuesday. Today we're a $10 billion private company. Um, you know, we have over 2000 people, but one interesting thing has happened, which is Hopper Cloud, where originally our vision was to be an app and that was enough. Um, as we started building our cloud business, we've sort of emerged as an infrastructure company. So we have B2C, we have B2B, we have these financial products where we calculate risk, it's in the middle. And as crazy as this sounds, as I look at where we're gonna be in 10 years, it feels like we're on a track to be something like the Alibaba of travel. And, and as ambitious as that seems, it seems to be happening on its own now. Like we're, we're just getting the market traction in all these different sectors. And so, I actually think we're going to be a multi-hundred billion dollar company that does everything from consumer to financial services to enterprise services in travel and maybe beyond that, although we're not looking at that right now. It just seems that the fundamental offering of Hopper is almost becoming the infrastructure company of travel. That is great. Thank you so much, Frederick, for taking the time with us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. As always, if you'd like to share feedback on the episode or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com, which uh, stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everybody who's already done so. We really appreciate all of your feedback and comments and, uh, and do ask that you keep them coming. If you enjoy this episode and would like to subscribe, just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast app. And that's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. In addition, we offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And there you can easily browse our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF for strategy and corporate finance. Follow us on Twitter or X at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.